You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. Focus this morning will be on John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. I'll be reading from chapter 2 and verse 23 to chapter 3, verse 21. John chapter 2, beginning with verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, and they saw when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you, of, told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, the flesh profits nothing. You tell us, your son has told us, it's the spirit who gives life. And so remind us, your people, how absolutely critical the work of the spirit is for the new birth and how insufficient is anything less. As we look out on this world of darkness, there is no other hope. As we look out on the professing church, there is no other hope than the blowing of your spirit. As we consider those unbelievers who think they're the believers that may be among us, false professors, as we consider our children, Father, we cry out to you, we pray that the Spirit would blow. As we leave this place to speak to our friends and neighbors, we pray that your Spirit would blow. That the testimony that you have given of yourself would be received. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. This is the first major discourse of Christ that we've come to in this gospel. And we'll, con- we'll consider it in two parts. Part one concerns what must be done to Nicodemus. And part two concerns what Jesus must do. There's a lengthy transition between the two happening over verses 10 through 13 where things get all put together. But those are the two basic things communicated to Nicodemus by Christ in this conversation. Something must happen to Nicodemus and something must be done for Nicodemus. The contrast or the two parts are not, mind you, what... Nicodemus must do and what Jesus must do. No, it is what must be done to Nicodemus and what must be done for Nicodemus. As we're introduced to Nicodemus, nearly every word describing him is heavily freighted with significance. Man, Pharisees, ruler, Of the Jews. And I think there are two corresponding pairs there. So that essentially man and of the Jews are telling us one thing. And Pharisees, ruler, telling us something else. But let's take them each in turn as we find them. There was a man. You cannot get much more of a general all-purpose, utility phrase than that. There was a man. And yet, as John uses it right here, 
it is loaded with significance. And to see something of it, read this passage afresh without the often intrusive, though helpful, man-manufactured address labels attached here that interrupt the flow of thought. So, find 224 and then ignore all the numbers from there forward. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and indeed no one and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus. As you read this text, it's clear. Nicodemus does not really know Jesus. But Jesus really knows Nicodemus. Second, he was a man of the Pharisees. We first encountered the Pharisees, chapter 1, verses 24 and following. We see that they are behind the questioning of John as far as who he is and why he's doing what he's doing. And now we see this Pharisee questioning Jesus. Third, he is a ruler, which is to say he's part of the Sanhedrin, that official body, governing body of the Jews, 70 men. He's, he's part of that body then who was behind the questioning of John in chapter 119 also. We read there, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, there are times whenever John refers to the Jews, whenever it's clearly the leadership that are in view, such as in that instance. The Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. This is that official ruling body. It's the same body that is behind the challenge to Jesus following the cleansing of the temple, 2.18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And that the leadership is involved there is plain, not just simply as you read through the book of John and you begin to get a sense of who he's referring to with such language. It's clear because right after that, we see the many. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So you have this distinction between the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And then the many, the crowds, governed by those same Jews who are believing in Him for the signs that they saw. So in other instances, though, the Jews has a broader meaning, as it does in verse 3. He is a ruler of the Jews. So of the Jews there corresponds to the many. Not the many, not the rulers but those who are ruled. So, man and Jews take us back to the crowds who are believing because they see the signs. And Pharisee's ruler takes us back to the elite who we have seen question and challenge Jesus. And so then, John bringing all those into our mind 
Which of those does he want us to associate John with, or Nicodemus with? Is Nicodemus like the Pharisees who question? Is he like the rulers who challenge? Is he like the Jews who believe only for the signs? Or is he like a man who is known? The answer is, it's like all of them. And yet, there's something distinct and different about him as well, as we'll see. Nicodemus, verse 2, comes to Jesus by night. Some think that Nicodemus being a reputable teacher and leader of the Jews, wishing to evade any notice, comes by cover of darkness. We're not told that. That's speculation. We could equally speculate that Nicodemus came because during the day, Jesus was so uh, surrounded by the crowds and so pressed upon that this was the only time really to get a private audience with him and, and a conversation at any length. What I do think is clear, that, that we can only speculate, but I think what is clear is that John by night means to create an atmosphere or a mood. This is one of those times whenever there's a subtle suggestion, there's there's this warp and woof to the gospel of John that he's weaving that goes throughout the entire gospel. And when we begin to look at all of his uses of darkness and night, I do think John is wanting to suggest something to us with this. So we read in chapter 1 and verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, John, as we'll see our Lord is, is fond of depth of meaning. And so, whenever we're told that the darkness has not overcome the light, it's not that John wants to communicate to us something less than that, but something more. It goes deeper and broader than just the darkness not overcoming the light. The New American Standard gives the other shade of meaning. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not or did not comprehend it. Nicodemus does not comprehend the light. John 3.19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John 9.4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. John 11.10, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. John 13.30, speaking of Judas' betrayal, So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So, John, having charged the atmosphere of our text with this mention of night, as you read John in light of John, listen to Nicodemus' statement anew. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. What do you make of Nicodemus' statement now? I wonder what you made of it before, your first take, your first reading of it, first reflecting on it. What did you think? There's nothing objectionable, nothing bad, evil, blasphemous. Indeed, there's a lot that's true that Nicodemus says. Seems to be on the right trail. 
He addresses Jesus as rabbi. Honorable term for a teacher, but it doesn't mean teacher. It means master. It addresses Jesus as rabbi, but compare his use of rabbi to that of Andrew, and who was very likely alongside of him, John, whenever they say, chapter 1, verse 38, Rabbi, where are you staying? Andrew and John address Jesus as rabbi, wishing to come under him and learn. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, as one who believes he is Jesus' peer. And that that's the case is clear with what Nicodemus next says. We know you are a teacher, he continues. Who is this we? Well, it's the ruling elite. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. We know. The fishermen's approach to our Savior was one of humility. Where are you staying? They want to learn. That's the idea. They want... They've heard John's testimony, behold the Lamb of God, and they want to follow Him and they want to learn, where are you staying? Basically, they're saying, we don't know nothing. Teach us. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know. As though the brambles have taken counsel together. And declare to the mighty oak, we recognize you as a woody plant. How nice to have your recognition. Thank you. They know he's come from God. They know he is God sent. And the reason they know this is no one can do the signs that he does unless God is with him. Instead of demanding a sign as his infuriated colleagues did earlier, Nicodemus more respectfully says, we see the signs you're doing and we know You're a teacher come from God because no one can do such signs unless God is with him. Now, there are four key words in Nicodemus' statement that I want to leap out. I want them to leap out to you. I want you to keep them. Have them on standby for whenever you see them again. We know teacher and unless. Have those handy. We know teacher unless. So in close examination of Nicodemus' statement, you, you sense something's wrong. You may not know exactly what it is. What is wrong here? I believe fundamentally two things are wrong with Nicodemus' statement. First, Nicodemus is a man. That's what's wrong with this statement. Nicodemus is a man. Jesus does not entrust himself to Nicodemus. He speaks to Nicodemus differently than he does the Pharisees, leaders who have challenged him. That's true. But he also speaks to Nicodemus differently than he does Andrew and Peter and Nathaniel and Philip. Nicodemus is a man. We don't know everything that's going on inside of this man, but Jesus does. And you know that Jesus sent something is wrong. He knows something is wrong. Whatever light is shining without, there is an absence of light 
fully shining within Nicodemus at this point. Second thing that's wrong with Nicodemus' statement, first, Nicodemus is a man. Second, Jesus is more than a man. Nicodemus confesses true things about Jesus, but he doesn't confess Jesus. John wrote this book not so that you might believe certain select true things about Jesus. He wrote this book and the events that he records were testifying to the same truth for the same purpose. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Nicodemus' statement is really a question slyly put. It's the same question that they put to John. It's the same question that lies underneath their question or their demand. Show us a sign. What sign do you show us for doing these things? It's a demand. Same way that Nicodemus is more politely, cunningly asking, who are you? Nicodemus recognizes Jesus as a teacher come from God. Doesn't recognize him as the prophet or the Christ. Know this. It is not enough to sincerely compliment Jesus with truth. Catch the magnitude of that. Sincere heart. Genuine compliment with truth. And it's not enough. You can avoid all error. You can glean true truth as to who Jesus is. And you can compliment Jesus and it is not enough. There is a way of complimenting Jesus with your praise that is true and still it will fall flat. Nicodemus's compliment here falls flat the same way that another ruler who complimented Jesus had his praise fall flat. Luke 18, a ruler asked him, Good teacher! This is pure speculation, but I almost wonder if, was this Nicodemus at another time? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is not there saying, I'm not good. He's challenging, why are you calling me good? You're complimenting me. It falls flat. You, as a man, it does you no good as a man to compliment Jesus as a man. He is to be worshipped as God. And anything less gets no recognition by Him. 
And this helps you to understand something of why Jesus replies as he does. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know that awkward moment after you've complimented someone and they neither say thank you or compliment them back? That's where Nicodemus is. Truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again. Is Jesus abruptly changing the subject? Does this have anything to do with what Nicodemus has said? I think there are four clear links between what Jesus says and what Nicodemus has initiated in this conversation. First, by this it becomes abundantly clear Jesus knows Nicodemus. Whenever he says, unless one is born again, it is plain that Jesus is saying, you and all your cohorts, the you is plural in verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus knew the point when Jesus said this, and Jesus was clearly intending that when he says one must be born again, he's speaking about Nicodemus and everyone involved with him. The Gospels, uh, let, me, let me say this. The first point that Jesus brings up here, you can't get beyond it. This is the first point in engaging with an unbeliever. We can do all kinds of apologetic work, and it's good, and God might use that. But this is ground zero that you cannot ab- advance from until this is taken care of. There must be new birth. Jesus knows Nicodemus, and he knows, Nicodemus, whatever you want to talk about, it has to start here. You need to be born again. Second, Jesus knows that whatever Nicodemus means by this, he doesn't mean enough. He knows truth, but he doesn't know the truth. Third, the phrase, the kingdom of God, I think, was one that perhaps jolted Nicodemus as to Jesus' piercing insight. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven interchangeably is used by the synoptic writers liberally. But it occurs in John only right here in chapter 3 and in chapter 18. Nowhere else. And that John chooses to use it at this point, it's not just faithfulness to what's happening here, but I think is, is intended to highlight something. Nicodemus is essentially wanting to know the answer to this question. Are you the Christ? Meaning, are you the son of David? Meaning, are you God's anointed king over his people? And Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You want to know if I'm the king? You can't have any perception of these things, Nicodemus, unless you're born again. Fourth, did you catch it? Jesus' unless, this is the first one we've come to, is a challenge to Nicodemus' unless. 
Teacher, we know. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. No one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the central point of the first part of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. It's something that must be done to Nicodemus. Nicodemus must be born from above. wonder if any of you, as you were reading, you take note of that little number, and you look at the footnote, and you recognize that above can, or born again, can be translated born from above. It's one of those instances where there's a kind of depth of meaning to this word, one that John would love to highlight. Since all men are born of the earth, every one of us, this is a universal requirement. Don't think that what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus doesn't have any bearing on you. No one is firstborn born from above. If anyone is born from above, they've been reborn. So from above means again, and again, the again he's talking about is a from above. No one is first birthed as birthed from above. But Nicodemus only hears again, and that's why his question is so ridiculous. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He only hears again. And Jesus' next statement is to clarify, when I said again, I mean from above. The second birth is not like the first birth. They're different. The second birth is a birth from above. It is a birth of water and the Spirit. Now, many Christians have been as confused by of water and the Spirit as Nicodemus was by again. What is of water and the Spirit? And there are all kinds of options that are put out there. But I believe recognizing this is referring to one thing makes it clear. This is a hendiatus. That's where two words are joined by and to communicate one thing. Not of water, as though that's baptism. Spirit, that's something different. And you need both of those and voila, you're born again. No, it's one thing. From above, again, means of water and the Spirit. It's a singular thing. And that singular thing, I believe, is what Ezekiel 36 speaks of. In this promise, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the birth from above that Jesus is telling Nicodemus is absolutely necessary. Why must this new birth happen? First, because If it doesn't happen, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. No new birth, no kingdom. Nicodemus, mind you, is not just a Jew. He's a Pharisee. And we hear that word in the totally wrong uh, connotation. We hear it with a negative one. You would hear it as 
He's a conservative, evangelical, reformed Baptist. That's the way they heard Pharisee. He's not only a Jew, he's a Pharisee. And he's not only a Pharisee, he's one of the select few Pharisees that were also part of the Sanhedrin. And he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. I wonder if Nicodemus ever heard himself or heard report of John the Baptist's words to the crowds in Luke 3.8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And so Jesus is telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, according to your flesh, and the word flesh in John doesn't carry all the time that negative connotation as Paul uses the term flesh. When Paul says it, he's talking about that sinful principle that remains with us, that we must mortify. But in John's gospel we read, and the word became flesh. So he's telling Nicodemus, listen, ignore the sinful part here. Let's just ignore that. According to your flesh, according to your humanness, according to your natural birth, even though it is distinguished as being a Jew, you must be born again. That first birth means nothing. You must be born again or you cannot see, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Second, Nicodemus needs the new birth because that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Spiritual birth is again. Flesh birth is original. Spiritual birth is from above. Flesh birth is from below. Spiritual birth is of water. Meaning, flesh birth is defiled. That which is original has no part in the new. That which is from below has no part in that which is from above. And that which is defiled has no part in the holy. To the Jews who stumbled over his words concerning eating his flesh and drinking his blood, Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And John adds this parenthetical statement, John 6, 63 and 64. Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. He knew and who it was who would betray him. The spirit gives life. The flesh is no help at all. To see or enter the kingdom, the flesh is no help at all. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus must be born again. It is not enough to have a godly heritage. It is nothing concerning you seeing or entering the kingdom. Earthly lineage cannot produce Birth from above. Spiritual pedigree does not mean spiritual birth is guaranteed. 
that which is born of the flesh is flesh. You. You need to hear this personally. Every soul here. You must be born again. God has, it is said, no grandchildren. You must be born from above. It must happen to you. It cannot happen to your parents for you. It cannot happen to your grandparents for you. It doesn't matter how far back your Jesus-believing, church-going, history goes. You will not go into the kingdom unless you are born from above. So Jesus having explained that flesh births flesh, the spirit births spirit, then calls for Nicodemus not to marvel at this. Not that he alongside his cohorts are told you must be born again. Nicodemus should marvel at this. And the reason he should marvel is because of the mystery. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In the original language, the words for spirit and wind are identical. We might refer to the spirit of this place or the, the, a man's spirit. And we understand it's only the context that helps us make distinction between how spirit is being used. So it is with the words wind and spirit here. They're identical. And as the wind blows where it wishes and you only know it by its effects, so it is, Jesus tells us, with rebirth by the spirit. The new birth happens as the spirit blows where he wishes Or as John put it already, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The new birth is of God. It's not as man wills, it's as God wills and as the Spirit blows. But Nicodemus marvels. Do not marvel, Nicodemus. How can these things be? Verse 9. Nicodemus, it seems, wants to master the wind. Tell me how it works, the way it works. It is not enough to inquire after these things. It's not enough to seek truth. The truth must seek you. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom. And so, looking for the kingdom without the new birth is like a blind man trying to see. John 6, Jesus told those same crowds in verses 44 and verse 65, No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It's not enough to try to understand the blowing of the wind. The wind must blow. You cannot birth yourself. A baby cannot cause his birth by taking birthing classes. There's no amount of information that child can gain that can cause his birth. 
You cannot know yourself into the kingdom. You cannot ascend there. And if your soul is troubled by this, and I think there are indications that Nicodemus, for all his faults here, is troubled about his soul. And if your soul is troubled by this, take heart. There's a kind of arrogant asking that Nicodemus' questioning is peppered with. But it's also salted, I think, with humble inquiry. There's a kind of marveling. How can these things be? And there's a problem. But there's something that's troubling inside Nicodemus too. He wants this. If it's your longing right now, oh, that the Spirit of God would blow on me and cause this new birth. Take comfort in this thought. You very likely are thinking that because the Spirit is blowing and the Father is drawing. And I would say, yield. Give way to that current and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot tell you where the wind blows, but I can tell you where he always blows to. Cannot tell you if he's going to blow here or if he's going to blow there, but if he blows here or there, I know where he will blow to. And he will blow towards Christ. And he uses the sail of Scripture. So let loose this sail, unfurl it, and look to Christ. Isn't it striking? That it's at this point that the transition begins to happen so that Jesus no longer is telling Nicodemus what must happen to him. He begins to unfold to him what must be done for him. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Sinner, do you want the new birth? Look to Christ crucified. Look and hear the testimony of Christ and believe. But before that transition, indeed, as, as part of that transition towards Christ lifted up, you have this rebuke. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? So Nicodemus shouldn't marvel at what Jesus said. Nicodemus should know this. Why? Because he's not just a teacher. He is the teacher of Israel. Teacher. Did you catch it? That's the second word. Jesus has now put Nicodemus in his place. Are you the teacher and you don't know this? Nicodemus said teacher as though he's a peer with Jesus. And now Jesus says, you're the teacher and you don't know this? You're the, you're the teacher of Israel. So you should understand. And the very giving of the law to Israel, the thing that teachers should teach... God said, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Nicodemus really reflected on that passage. He would understand you must be born again. Or you have all the new heart, new spirit language of the new covenant that we, we've looked at already in Ezekiel 36. You find it in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 32. 
And then also, you remember that after, immediately after, that new spirit being put within you and sprinkling you with clean water and cleansing you from all your uncleannesses, all that language in, in chapter 36, immediately after that, what does Ezekiel see? What's his vision in chapter 37? He sees a valley of dry bones. Can these bones live? God asks. You know, Lord. Prophesy to them. Ezekiel prophesies, and they stand, and sinews cover them, and flesh covers them. And he's told to prophesy again, and breath enters into them, and they live. God then gives this explanation. Son of man, see these these bones are the whole house of Israel. Dead. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh. Then. After new birth. Then they know. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken and I will do it. Declares Yahweh. Ezekiel 37, 11 through 14. So in contrast to Nicodemus' ignorance as the teacher of Israel. Jesus then tells him. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. There's the last two words. We know. Now, who's this we? Some propose it is Jesus along with his disciples. The thing is, whereas in the synoptic gospels, we find the disciples bearing witness during Jesus' ministry. That's when the 12 are sent out. That's when the 70 are sent out. In John's gospel, the witness of the disciples is something future and ahead. So, John 15, 26, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You will bear witness. In this gospel, the only person other than than Jesus, only human other than Jesus, bearing witness is John the Baptist. It's something that said the disciples will do, but as far as doing it, the one we see doing it is John the Baptist. And remember, John the Baptist is bearing witness as one who has seen the Spirit's witness to Christ. John 1, 32 through 33, John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I believe this is a Trinitarian we. We bear witness We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Throughout John, 
the Father bears witness to Christ. John 8, 18. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. John 5, 36. Jesus' own words bear witness about him. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And throughout John, the Spirit bears witness to Christ. You see that with His descent on Christ. But John 15, 26 says, The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. So Nicodemus sees the signs like the crowds. And he believes but he doesn't receive the testimony of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in those signs. Neither do the crowds. And the testimony given by the Father, Son, and the Spirit is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. To receive is to believe, John 1.12, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name. You do not receive. Whatever Nicodemus believes, it's not the believing that is the receiving of the testimony of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And Jesus then tells Nicodemus, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I found that to be the most puzzling and troublesome part of this text and trying to make sense of as I looked at it this week. I've told you of earthly things. It's humbling because <laughs> you begin to think, am I in the place of Nicodemus? Because I cannot, that's hard. If I've told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What are the earthly things? What are the heavenly things? I think this is another instance where there's a depth of meaning that Jesus means to communicate here. And it says we begin to take the elements bit by bit and they amass. I think we begin to recognize what Jesus is saying. First, this is a statement highlighting the failure of Nicodemus to receive the Trinitarian testimony concerning Christ. It's a statement then regarding his failure to believe, his lack of understanding, his marveling, his not seeing, his not being born again. And so I meant... I believe then it's meant to convey something of Nicodemus's not just lack of understanding, but his incapability of understanding as a man. And that's brought out, I believe, when Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Nicodemus, I think here, is trying to, as it were, ascend into heaven. He wants to gain this revelation of himself by ascent. He wants to figure out the new birth by rising up, as it were. As one theologian put it, there is no evolution from flesh to spirit. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 1 Corinthians 2 tells you something of what's going on here. We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words 
not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So that's element number one of what Jesus is getting at when he says, if I've told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Second, the earthly things clearly has reference to what Jesus has been saying. That's what puzzles you at first. Is the new birth by the Spirit earthly? What are the heavenly things then? I believe they're the answer to Nicodemus's question, how can these things be? See, Nicodemus not only fails to understand what, not, not only to understand these things, he wants to know how these things that he doesn't understand can be. Nicodemus not only fails to understand the Spirit blows where it wills, he wants to know how it is that the Spirit blows where it wills. He not only marvels at the new birth, he wants to understand the mystery that lies behind the new birth. He wants to go behind the work of God on earth to peer into the heavenly counsels that lie behind that work of God on earth. How can these things be? He wants to rip apart the fabric of time and peer into the mystery of eternal, eternity and unlock these things. He's not received the testimony of the one who has come down. He wants to be lifted up. Third, and finally, as this verse transitions us from what must be done to Nicodemus to what Jesus must do, I think Jesus is going on to answer his question How can these things be? He gives Nicodemus some insight into how this can be. Not by man's assent, but by God's descent. Flesh cannot raise itself up to spirit. Man is a spirit, but he can't cause that new birth. Man cannot assent to this spiritual birth. But God who is spirit can descend And take on flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. God has come down. And there's this testimony that's right before Nicodemus. Nicodemus cannot ascend. But God come down is right before him. How can these things be? Well, Jesus is going to tell him. Underlying the new birth from above by the Holy Spirit, underneath that is the descent and lifting up of the Son of Man on the cross and from the grave. How can these things be? What is done must be done to Nicodemus finds its grounds on what Jesus will do for Nicodemus. He must be lifted up. It is not enough for you to compliment Jesus. It is not enough for you to have a godly heritage. It is not enough to inquire after Jesus seeking the truth. You, hear this now, every soul, 
you must be born again or you cannot see, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The Spirit must cleanse you and make you new. Don't marvel at this. Grasp the mystery of it. It's not a mystery that you can explain. It's a mystery that does explain. The Spirit blows where He wills. And how can that be? The Spirit is blowing and making men new because Jesus died for sinners. And He rose from the grave. And as Lord, He sends forth His Spirit to bless the preaching of the gospel. So that as Christ crucified and risen is proclaimed, the Spirit puts you into union with Christ. So that you die And you're buried. And you rise a new creation. Reborn in Christ. Born from above. Sinner, it becomes plain. As we read along through this gospel, we will encounter Nicodemus two more times. And it's plain. The Spirit blew. For all his faults that you see here. The spirit was blowing. Moving. Drawing. Nicodemus was born again. And I would plead with you. If you sense right now. The spirit's blowing. The cell of the scripture is spread. And if you sense. The spirit's blowing you. By it towards Christ. Christ crucified for sinners, risen as Lord. If you sense that, believe. Receive that testimony. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He died in the stead of sinners, bearing their sins. He rose conquering the grave. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and you will have the kingdom. Because you have its king. Let's pray. Holy Father, the flesh profits nothing. Not how grand any soul might bear witness to the gospel. It means nothing unless your spirit blows. But Father, we know what he uses is the sail of scripture. And so we've unfurled it here in hope. That the Spirit would blow. And we plead with you that it would. For any soul here that doesn't know Christ. That they would, by your grace, yield to that wind as they're born again. And receive your testimony. And believe in the Son. And have eternal life. That they might see the kingdom of our Lord. And may we go forth from this place with that testimony. Not confident in ourselves. Putting no confidence in our flesh. But knowing knowing that you bless the preaching of the gospel to bring about the new birth. It is the power of God unto salvation. And so may we proclaim it in hope and with confidence in the Spirit's blowing. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.